The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. Hello from New York City and welcome to another episode of The Hearing Podcast. I'm Lauren Sobel and in today's episode, I have the honor of sitting down with billionaire philanthropist and former lawyer, Laura Arnold. Laura, along with her husband, John, co-founded Arnold Ventures, an organization dedicated to improving the lives of Americans through evidence-based policy solutions. Now, if you're wondering what that means and how that plays out in the world of philanthropy, you'll find the answer in today's episode, and it's one of the things that makes Arnold Ventures so unique. Laura and John created Arnold Ventures in part to change laws based on the belief that bipartisan policy is the most sustainable change you can make as a philanthropist. The organization has spent $2.5 billion funding more than 3,200 different projects, touching on many different areas of need like criminal justice reform, healthcare, democracy, and public finance, to name a few. It's worth noting that Laura and John, who fund Arnold Ventures out of pocket, have received Forbes' highest possible score for generosity, um, and that's how much they donate based on overall wealth. They are on a short list of only 11 others in the U.S. that includes the likes of Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, and Mackenzie Scott. I learned a lot about the world of philanthropy from my conversation with Laura, including the impacts of laws on philanthropy and philanthropy on laws, and I hope you do too. So now please enjoy the episode. The Hearing. Thank you so much for joining us today, Laura. Um, Since we are a global podcast and we have listeners all over the world, for people outside of the U.S. who maybe are not as keyed into U.S. philanthropy, can you tell us a bit about yourself, who you are, and and what you do? Well, first and foremost, thank you so much, Lauren, for having me on your podcast. It's uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to meet you, and uh, I so appreciate your interest in our work and in the topic of, of philanthropy. You asked um, you asked a little bit about us and about me and about the, sort of what we do at Arnold Ventures. Uh, we are a U.S. focused uh, policymaking organization, uh, philanthropy. We use philanthropy in the broadest sense of the word. So we are an organization whose core belief is to transform policy through evidence based practices. So everything that we do at Arnold Ventures is centered on creating better solutions to the world's biggest problems with the mission of maximizing opportunity and minimizing injustice. So when you say evidence-based research, that's a term that I think for people who have heard of it, they've heard it most often in the science context. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the philanthropic context and what evidence-based research means in, in the philanthropy world? Well, absolutely. And it's not dissimilar from the science context. You're right that um, uh, maybe sometimes your your uh, head gravitates more towards thinking of scientific studies. And, and in fact, you know, when we began our journey in philanthropy, we also began in science. We began to look into issues of nutrition science. We were interested in nutrition policy because We've always been interested in laws and in in, um, understanding what affects human behavior and how can we contribute to interventions that maybe could change human behavior to, um, you know, to the benefit of society and how could we transform that into policy. So in the specific context of nutrition, we started poking around and thinking about, um, at the time, 
there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of discussion about uh, soda taxes and warning labels and um, uh, just calorie count disclosures and all of these ideas about how to get people to make better choices uh, in terms of what they ate, and that resonated with us, but. We wanted to get back to basic principles and sort of ask the threshold question in our mind, which was, well, okay, what do we know about what makes us obese? What are the drivers of obesity? What does science tell us about the driving factors, the scientific factors that might lead to suboptimal outcomes? Because then, you know, if we know that it's sugar, or if we know that it's processed foods, or if we know that it's, you know, any number of these things, and we can target policy objectives toward those things. And so we started uh, looking into, well, well, what do we know about what causes obesity? And it became very clear to us that even in that context, when it came to scientific assessments of the drivers of obesity, there was so much ambiguity and uncertainty, and for lack of a better word, um, just incomplete, if not shoddy science. You could find arguments that any nutrient either makes you fat or you know, either causes cancer or doesn't cause cancer or, you know, like it's, it's just, it's, it's the, the scientific data was everywhere, which told us that there really wasn't enough rigor in that specific space. And we started sort of looking more deeply into the issue and saw that in social sciences, we face the same issue. So when you are thinking about what works in terms of changing human behavior, uh, whether it's addiction or whether it's, um, you know, some sort of a of, of, of social science problem, homelessness, or, you know, any of the fundamental problems that we face as a society, the the lowercase e evidence is all over the board in terms of what does and doesn't work. And so we became very interested in really, really hunkering down and parsing what do we know about what does work and what doesn't work. And that means specifically doing the very hard work of evaluating interventions, uh, doing multi-year evaluations, ideally randomized control trials, that give us some sort of direction and give us some methodological uh, rigor and can deliver us to us some certainty about what does and doesn't work in society. So when I think about evidence-based policymaking, it means going through that exercise of identifying the problem, understanding what are the alternatives that people are thinking about or talking about or even implementing, creating a randomized control trial or some other rigorous mechanism for really asking the fundamental question, is this intervention creating better outcomes in the status quo? So that we can then have a, an informed debate in the policymaking circles as to whether or not the cost-benefit analysis of this intervention might dictate that we fund it, whether or not um, this is an advisable intervention for a state or a federal government or a community to, um, to invest in. So, so thinking through not only identifying problems, but creating solutions that actually work and that don't just have anecdotal evidence that they work. So there are two issues I, I wanted to ask you about um, that I think Arnold Ventures has um, put a lot of money behind, um, and that is criminal justice reform and and healthcare. So can you can you give our audience examples? How does this evidence based policy um, research sort of um, translate into something concrete, and how does it guide what issues Arnold Ventures decides to put their um, energy into? 
I could talk for many, many, many hours about this, but we can. Uh, but I'm happy to give examples in all of our issues, actually, not just on criminal justice reform and healthcare. We also have a very extensive portfolio in democracy, in public finance, in um, you know many other uh, in many other areas, higher ed, uh, contraceptives, and so in all of the areas that we that we work on, the um, the the starting point is identifying a market dysfunction. A systemic dysfunction, something that that is deeply broken in our system, that is yielding outcomes that are suboptimal for everyone. Whether those outcomes are people are getting, people can't afford the drugs, uh, the pharmaceuticals that they're that they're uh, prescribed, so they're having to make trade offs in their lives, you know, between paying rent or eating and uh, and and filling their prescriptions, or whether it's um, in criminal justice, whether it's the the noxious and and, and, and really harmful effects of something like bail. Uh, so we always start thinking about, okay, well, what is the, um, what is the, specific, the specific problem that we're trying to define? And then we start thinking about, are there alternative solutions that we could test? So you asked for an example, so I'll give you uh, an, the first example of, of, what, we, uh, of what we ever um, worked on in um, criminal justice, which was bail. We were very shocked to see that at the time, there were, call it 750,000 people on any given day in jails in the United States awaiting trial, the vast majority of whom were there only because they could not make bail. They weren't there because they were violent. They weren't there because they had been sentenced, right? Uh, We live in a country where we are innocent until proven guilty, but these individuals were Awaiting trial, which, as you know, could be, you know, could be up to a year in some jurisdictions, if not more. So they're waiting these extended periods of time only because they couldn't make a very, very, a relatively very, very small payment to buy their freedom in the in the pretrial period. In other words, from the time that they were arraigned to the time that they would be tried. And that seemed to us, you know, from a um, from a, a social science perspective, even from the perspective of a taxpaying citizen, it seemed like a highly suboptimal outcome. First of all, you're incarcerating people who are nonviolent, who are not dangerous. You have no uh, no reason to believe that these individuals would be harmful to society. And we're costing millions and millions and millions of dollars to public finances to incarcerate people who don't need to be incarcerated. So we took a step back and thought, well, what is the purpose of the criminal justice system at that time with respect to those individuals? That answer seemed pretty clear to us. At the time of arraignment, the only thing that should matter to the court and to society are two things. First of all, is Laura Arnold going to show up for trial six months from now or eight months from now or four months from now? And second, is Laura going to do anything bad between today and her trial or her trial date? Those are the only two questions that, in theory, should guide the decision-making process at that point of arraignment. It felt to us that bail answers neither of those questions. So we thought to ourselves, okay, could we come up with some other system, some other way to help judges make decisions that would be more informed in terms of how to handle how to handle defendants who were before them at arraignment so that we don't destroy people's lives. Because, of course, if you can't make $200 a bail, 
which is 10% of the $2,000 that maybe that your bail was set. So you couldn't pay that 10% to a bail bondsman to buy your freedom for six months or eight months. That tells us a lot about your economic stability. You may lose your housing. You'll certainly lose your job. Maybe you'll lose your kids. Maybe you'll lose it. And so it felt to us at a very visceral level, are we making society more or less safe by, by completely eliminating the safety net, and the economic stability of an individual. So by any angle that you looked at this problem, it felt to us like the current system wasn't working. It's not like we had great answers to what system you know, would be better, but we wanted to start the conversation of what else can we do? What else should we explore? And so that's what we did. We created a, um, a non-interview-based, data-based risk assessment tool that we rolled out all over the country. That we that we helped um, that we helped roll out in states like Kentucky, states like New Jersey. That was a tool, not an answer, not a crystal ball, but just a tool that could help judges make more informed decisions as to whether or not they needed to incarcerate somebody who couldn't make bail. And each jurisdiction has you know interpreted them differently. Each jurisdiction has used them differently. But the idea was. So to get away from this default system of just looking at a bail schedule, not considering somebody's ability to pay, not considering the dangerousness of an individual, um, you know, in society, not not really making an individualized assessment as to what is best for society with respect to this person. That was really sort of the birth of Arnold Ventures. Is you know we saw a problem. We were trying to kick around ideas for how to better create solutions that would help society. Now, since then, we've, you know, our criminal justice work expands, as you may know, you know, through the gamut of, of the system. We work on issues of reentry, we work on issues of prisons, we work on community corrections, we work on, you know, there are so many areas in the system where the status quo is deeply broken and it yields suboptimal outcomes not only for the people in the system in the sense that we're destroying their lives but also for society because all of those broken systems are creating scenarios that make all of us less safe it's very easy to point to problems the hard thing is to approach solutions in a way that is thoughtful methodologically sound and that yields answers that you know are at, at least likely to create better outcomes for society. I want to uh, talk to you a little bit about your your legal career. Um, I think people would be interested to know that you you were a lawyer, correct, um, at one time? Yes, I was. I was a mergers and acquisitions lawyer in New York. Yes, at Walk to Lipton. Do you miss practicing at all? You know, I do... I miss a few things. First, I think one of the one of the beautiful things about practicing at Wachtell Lipton, and I, I can't speak to other firms because I was only at that one, was that it was um, it was a true it was not only was it a true meritocracy, but it was also a um, a community of very like minded people that you could not survive at Wachtell Lipton unless you were a certain type. 
you know, that you were just like a little bit introverted and really loved the sort of, you know, the, the physical challenge of the all-nighters after all-nighters. And, you know, you loved the adrenaline of the deal-making, at least on the corporate side, right? And so, so when I think about it, it was a really wonderful time in my life when I was with so many people who were of my same sort of you know, personality in some way, shape, or form, and who were driven kind of by the same thing. Uh, so I missed that at some level because there were a lot of, I felt a lot of camaraderie and a lot of um, similarity with uh, many of the people there, even though I was, you know, the only Hispanic woman and there weren't that many women and all the other, you know, all the things. Like I wasn't, it's not like I was like everybody else, but I very much felt like um, like it was my my environment because because everybody was was driven by the same thing. I think once I once I left New York, I realized that you know, like when you're on the coasts, you think that nothing happens other than on the coasts. Right? Like you think you think especially at least in the legal profession, you know, and probably in the banking profession too, you think that all the smart people in the universe are only in like New York and in California and in the Bay Area and that, you know, uh, in DC when it comes to laws and stuff, but that's sort of, you know, um, and everybody, and, and, and it occurred to me that every single person that I knew pretty much had the same resume in New York, like, you know, Ivy League college, and then, you know, like some sort of variation of Ivy League law school, and they'd done a fellowship in England, and they had done like, I mean, I could tell you like 10 people who had my exact resume, like exact, right, even to the school, right? And I think one of my big um, revelations, and I think uh, sort of not only growth opportunities, but really sort of transformational moments, was realizing that this country is so large. There are brilliant people in so many places. And that, and that a diversity of perspectives makes you so much more uh, complicated, complex, and effective. And in the course of creating this philanthropy, I've come to really value so deeply being here, here in Texas, because people aren't the same because there is such diversity of opinion and because there's no homogeneity of thought. So you have to find a way to find common ground with people who, are, who have very different backgrounds from yours, who don't have my resume, who actually don't even value my resume, who actually think my resume is like a detriment to, you know, to progress. And you have to find ways of creating commonality of purpose with people from a much broader range of backgrounds. And I'm not just talking about academic or socioeconomic backgrounds. I'm talking about ideological backgrounds. So I think that has become such a deep fiber, a deep element of the moral fiber of Arnold Ventures, that we know that we're not ideologues, that if you want to get anything done, you have to work with all all sides of the political spectrum, like 360, not just 180. And if you're not prepared to do that, you can't do this work. So I think that um, it's made us so much more effective as an organization. It's made us so much more effective and empathetic as individuals. And I think it's made us better professionals. The Hearing. 
you're an attorney with a passion to perform, a drive to be absolutely on your game. With superior resources, serious preparation, and total confidence. Be your best with Thomson Reuters Practical Law. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. So I want to go back a little bit um, and and sort of talk about how Arnold Ventures came about. Um, and I guess my, my first question for you is, how did you come up with the idea to even start um, an organization like Arnold Ventures? I think it's fair to say that we never thought that uh, that the organization would be what, what it is today. I mean, you know, John and I, John, my husband and I were fortunate enough to come into significant wealth relatively early in our lives. We were in our early 30s. And we didn't want to spend all of our time on professional endeavors, on, you know, sort of profit-making endeavors anymore. I mean, at some point, uh, you know, sort of the marginal dollar wasn't, you know, wasn't motivating to us. We, you know, we had young children. We knew that we wanted to do something really special and really different. We started kicking around ideas of, you know, how can we how can we create something different? Now, at the time, we assumed that what we could do was create, you know, big grants to a bunch of really established organizations. I mean, philanthropy has been um, part of the part of American society for time immemorial. So we assumed that we would have much more alignment with existing, um, for lack of a better word, charities, and and that we could get money out the door very quickly. What we found was that, you know, when you start asking questions about, well, how do we know that, you know, certain interventions work, there, there weren't, the answers were not as clear as, as what we wanted. So we started, um, but we started our journey with education. You know, education is a very uh, mature field in the United States. There are a lot of very smart people who have done really incredible things in education, from teacher training to the charter school movement to, um, you know, to to higher ed to, you know, there, there's a lot of um, knowledge. Now, it doesn't mean that there's consensus, but there's a lot of knowledge that you can tap into. So it was a wonderful place to start just to start thinking about these issues. What became clear to us, uh, I think within a few years of us really starting to dig in and, and become philanthropists in education, was that a lot of the issues that we saw in education had little to do with the classroom. Not nothing to do with the classroom. Certainly the classroom is important and teacher training is important and the high quality of schools and curriculum and all those things are deeply important. But what's also important is the societal infrastructure that yields the circumstances that those children find themselves in. So issues of poverty, issues of homelessness, issues of health care, issues of the safety net, issues of opportunity, issues of racial injustice, issues of civil rights, all of those issues are equally, if not more important, to creating the systemic dysfunction that yields to injustice. And that naturally then led us to explore all of these different issues, like public finance, like democracy, 
like um, social services. And it led us down this path of inquiry of how do we know how to provide the best resources and the best opportunities, how to maximize opportunity, how to minimize injustice for communities that we care about. And it became clear to us that required us to invest in a number of issue areas, in a number of ideas to tackle every aspect of this problem, not just education. I wanted to talk a little bit about the structure of of Arnold Ventures. So um, it is structured as a privately held LLC. Uh, Is that right? Yes, that's right. So that is different from other philanthropic organizations. Um, Yes. Can you talk to us about what was behind the decision to to structure Arnold Ventures as an LLC and, and why it allows you to do things differently than other organizations? Well, in the U.S., the uh, when most people think of philanthropy, they think of uh, a foundation, and that is um, not to not to be exceedingly boring to your international listeners, but that is typically quali- something that qualifies as a five hundred one c three organization. The operative distinction being that any money that you give to a five hundred one c three organization is tax deductible to you as an individual. So if you give to a you know a charity any kind of charity in the U.S. you can then deduct that you know that amount from your from your taxes. So broadly, that's the that's the limit of my tax speak. Except to say this, there is um, there those five hundred one c three organizations are meant to be education organizations, meaning that they can conduct research, they can conduct um, they can uh, they can give summaries of uh, the sort of the state of the world. They can give uh, to people in need, for example. So there's a lot that these 501c3s can do, but for very, very legitimate reasons, they are not allowed to advocate for policy um, interventions, right? So they're not allowed to lobby. They're not allowed to promote a political idea, by and large. And that, and that makes perfect sense because, you know, this is, you've given, you, you are, you've gotten a tax deduction to give to a charity that is supposed to do good and the work should be, in theory, apolitical, right? So that's sort of the, um, the landscape. Uh, many funders fund 501c3s because of the tax deductibility. Um, it's also sort of a politically very safe space because they're not going to do something very controversial. You know, they're going to do things that are um, pretty sort of bread and butter. Think universities, think think tanks, think, you know, um, you know, your very traditional safe philanthropic giving. And that's actually a wonderful, wonderful space that is highly needed. We need think tanks. We need people to, uh, you know, to summarize research and to do research and to, uh, and to do direct service. So all of that is wonderful. What we wanted to do when we started Arnold, what is now Arnold Ventures, is change laws. We wanted to identify a problem. We wanted to articulate and investigate what are better solutions to the status quo. We wanted to scale those solutions in a way that was methodologically rigorous and that was replicable. And then we wanted to promote those solutions and make them into law because we believe the policy, the bipartisan policy, is the most sustainable change that you can make as a philanthropist. So we could do a lot of the research, but obviously, you know, we couldn't, within the confines of a, a foundation, we couldn't do the policy piece in the way that we necessarily wanted to. So we had a policy shop, which is, and this is again, the last snippet of tax speak that I will utter, 
a 501c4. And a 501c4 is not tax deductible. So, you know, givers in general, they want the tax deduction, and so they'll give to the C3, they won't give to the C4. The C4 can do all the political stuff, right? So, so we did that for many years. We, you know, we wanted, we, we did the policy work, the or, or the sort of the research and education work through a C3, and then we had a C4 that sort of promoted, um, promoted uh, the the policy initiatives that we wanted to do. And that worked for us early on because, to be honest with you, Lauren, we didn't, I mean, it's like we had great answers. I mean, these are really complicated issues. And by the way, people have been struggling with these issues for hundreds of years. And so it's not like we were, you know, rocket scientists that suddenly had like some big answer. And it took us a minute to figure out, okay, how do we define the problem? How do we frame the problem? How can we how are we going to add value? So early on, a lot of the work that we did really was about research, about pure research and about just sort of shedding light on problems. But then, you know, we started we started becoming a little bit more well-known. We started, um, we had an ability to hire people who were top of their fields. And now we started gravitating more toward, okay, now what do we do about this? What do we know about the research that we've invested in? What do we know about what does and doesn't work? What is left still to try? How can we start positioning uh, these policies to have bipartisan support? Is there a bipartisan window that's opening for these policies to be implemented? So as we naturally progressed more toward the policymaking side, of, if you view it as a spectrum, then this distinction didn't really make sense for us. And we very strongly felt and feel that the tax code should not determine your giving. So what we did was we created an LLC, and we fund all of Arnold Venture's work out of pocket with us. Um, we do use, we still have a foundation, and so if there are squarely uh, research-oriented grants or grants that, are, that, that fall squarely within the functions of a C3, we'll fund those through a C3. But we fund the policy work when appropriate, through the C4. And what that does, so, so it's, it creates one unified effort that isn't um, restricted. And again, I'll say, you know, these restrictions make all the sense in the world. I'm not, I'm not uh, challenging the existence of those restrictions. But we're not guided by a need for a tax deduction. We are guided by a desire and really an urgency to create a better tomorrow in the United States. So for us to do that, it's easier to have one conversation as opposed to, you know, you, you know, this, this group works on this and this work works on that. And, you know, I can't use your stapler and you can't use my pen. And, you know, it's, it's, it just became inefficient for us. And so that was the reason why we made the pivot to Arnold Ventures, which is an LLC, as you note. It just allows us to have one conversation. You and your husband signed something called the Giving Pledge um, over 10 years ago. Talk to us about the Giving Pledge for, for people who may not be familiar with it. What is it and what does it mean? Well, of course, well, the Giving Pledge uh, is also international. So now, uh, I forget the, the exact numbers, but now there's also a fair amount of, of um, international pledgers, which I think is really, really exciting. But, um, but you're right to note that I think it's maybe 12 years old, the Giving Pledge. When the idea was that um, Bill and Melinda uh, Gates and, um, and Warren Buffett wanted to unify like-minded people in the hopes that those people would set an example 
for others to think about philanthropy. Philanthropy is the kind of thing that if you have a day job, you always put, a, put off until tomorrow. Even if you don't have a day job, it's so hard just to, to get started, especially for somebody who is incredibly successful because, uh, you know, you would think you would think that very successful people are very aggressive risk takers because very frequently, you know, if not always, this is how they became very, very successful is by taking those risks. But actually, in practice, they're very risk averse when it comes to philanthropy. And there's, you know, I'm sure that there are many uh, psychologists and specialists who could, you know, sort of parse that um, statement and maybe give some guidance as to why that is. But my my reflection has been that it's just very hard to do something outside your, your area, especially when you're so successful in your own area. So that barrier, that almost becomes like a barrier to entry because you don't want to fail. So, so there's a lot of... Um, I think there's a lot of value in just raising philanthropy to the forefront of everybody's consciousness. So back, you know, 12 years ago, 10 years ago, whenever it was, when Bill Gates called and said, we're putting together this, um, you know, this cohort, we, we want to do this thing called the Giving Pledge, and this is what it entails. It was actually, you know, honestly, a pretty soft commitment. I mean, the, the commitment, and I don't think this has changed, was to give away uh, at least half of your wealth in your lifetime or in your will. So uh, one of our observations, even early on, was, you know, maybe we could just say in your lifetime, because we deeply believe that it should be in one's lifetime. Now, obviously, nobody knows when she's going to die. So that creates a timing issue. And that's, you know, so so I certainly appreciate that. But the um, But the idea was to just start getting people thinking about how am I going to put my money to work for philanthropic causes and how, how can I not push this off until tomorrow? So the pledge is one piece of it. I think um, a probably a more important piece of it is um, the conversations that go around the pledge, which is you know, the pledgers get together. We talk about what everybody's doing. People sort of, you know, not only are you like-minded, but you're similarly situated. So, you know, you've got this, you know, large uh, corpus of, 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 of assets that you could give to philanthropy, but sometimes you just don't know where to start. And you don't want to make a fool of yourself. You don't want to make a mistake. And sometimes that is just paralyzing. So part of the, the hope, and I think this has come, this has become a reality, is that you start having those conversations and you get more comfortable. And you have a resource. The Giving Pledge actually has a staff that's enormously um, resourceful and kind and giving with their time. So the pledgers can call and say, I'm interested in this issue. What do you know about it? Who can you connect me to? And so if you were to call them and say, I'm really interested in, you know, criminal justice, they'll say, oh, call Laura. Laura would be happy to talk to you about what she's doing. Or, you know, and then we have learning sessions. And so it's really about sparking interest in philanthropy. It also has, as I mentioned, an international component, which has been really, really, I think, um, really moving because in many, in, you know, in many countries, philanthropy isn't part of the culture. Um, I think that everybody, everybody wants to help others, but the structured philanthropic environment, I think, is something that's very unique to the U.S. So exporting this concept has been a really interesting exercise. It's 
really eye-opening. I don't know how many people, including including myself, have stopped to think about the fact that, yes, it might be difficult, even though you have millions and billions of dollars, to figure out where to donate you know, money to or what, what causes to get behind. And I can imagine it's, it's pretty overwhelming um, when you're in the public eye. You have to be you know, more conscious about the things you, you sort of back, I think, for some people. Um, so that's, it's very eye-opening to hear that there is an organization that, that helps people through this. So before we go today, I wanted to ask you uh, one, one more question, which is, um, is there one question that you would love to answer but have never been asked? You know that's a good question. I think, I think that as the um, as the years have progressed, it's um, it's been very surprising to me the degree to which people assume that we have some sort of financial agenda or some sort of um, of, of uh, you know ulterior motive for the work that we do. So I guess the question that I would love people to ask that they've never asked is why do you do this work? I mean, the real answer to why we do this work is because we want to leave the country better than we found it, because we're, we feel blessed to have the ability to spend our days, not our evenings, not our part-times, not our vacation time, but our days, our every single day living and breathing this work and trying to create better communities, because we feel committed to creating a better tomorrow because of the opportunities that we faced. So it really comes from an honest and earnest desire to do good. And, and my hope is that um, I get asked that more. Because, and you know, when the answer just seems a little bit, um, like, it seems, like it's so transparent that it feels disingenuous, right? Because you know, nobody's just doing this to, but, but honestly, we are. I mean, honestly, this is, you know, we we might be wrong in some of the things that we're pursuing, and if we are wrong, we're the, we'll be the first to pivot. If the evidence points to something that's you know that's a, a better alternative than what we're thinking of, but this idea of iterating, to always ask the question of how we could be better and how we could help communities maximize opportunity and minimize injustice, it really is what drives us every day. And, and I think that's certainly clear if anybody, uh, you know, listens today, your passion um, for what you do is is crystal clear. Um, and we really, really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to us today. So thank you so, so much. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for having me on. The Hearing. Thanks so much for spending time with us today. If you like what you heard or want to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast. You'll be automatically notified when a new episode comes out. Please also consider leaving us a review. This helps other like-minded people find our podcast. We would also love to hear from you in other ways. We truly welcome your guests and topic ideas. So if you have any suggestions or just want to say hello, drop us a line at thehearingattr.com. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.